This is Milestones. I'm Angelica Beener. I'm so excited to bring this podcast to WBGO Studios and welcome the WBGO family to the show. Here, we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. On today's episode, I'm joined by saxophonist, composer, producer, and educator, Greg Osby, to discuss Miles Davis's Someday My Prince Will Come in honor of its 60th birthday. One of the most original and creative musicians of his generation, Osby speaks candidly about what it means to be an artist in transition, as Miles Davis was in 1961, why Hank Mobley deserves much more love, and how expanding beyond the top five mentality will make for both a better musician and scene. We also talk about the significance of that now iconic album cover. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy. We are talking about a remarkable album, and that is Miles Davis's 1961 release, Someday My Prince Will Come, an album that would mark a pivotal shift in Davis's artistic trajectory. It is an album that would make an important social statement, and it also marks the end of a sensational period after, after the dissolve of uh, one of Davis's greatest ensembles. And I could not be more thrilled and honored to welcome this episode's special guest, a St. Louis, Missouri native who has made an indelible mark on my city, New York City, and the world as a brilliantly original and provocative musician, a prolific and visionary saxophonist who, as far as I'm concerned, is very much ahead of his time as an early champion of synthesizing hip hop and funk, jazz, soul, um, with his musical comrade, Steve Coleman, he helped found the M-Bass Collective, a rich and creative community of like-minded artists, Cassandra Wilson, Gary Thomas, Gene Lake, and the late, great Jerry Allen. Uh, he's worked with an array of elder masters from Dizzy to McCoy Tyner to Hub and Andrew Hill, just to name a few. And as a lead recording artist, he has a distinguished discography, including 15 albums on the Blue Note label before establishing his own Inner Circle Music in 2008. He is, without question, one of the most original voices of his generation. Please welcome, for my 10th episode of Milestones, saxophonist, composer, producer, mentor, and educator, the prolific Mr. Greg Osby. Greg, welcome to the show. A pleasure. So how has 2021 been treating you? We're, what, 18 months into this pandemic. How are you doing? Well, we humans are uh, adaptable creatures, <laughs> and we have to adapt to uh, varying circumstances and environments. And given that uh, we have this plague that plagues us, <laughs> um, well, long story short, I mean, uh, a lot of my work abroad has been postponed, canceled, and um, voluntarily, you know, I, I refuse to go out until we have a handle on this thing. So um, just had to shift gears and, you know, get some other irons in the fire hot and, uh, you know, just uh, alter my focus in, you know, education, online activities, remote producing, film work, things like that. Amazing. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure you are no less busy 
Uh, <laughs> so sure. let me ask you a question. Has being in a pandemic where we've all sort of had to sit still and sit down, has it made you listen to music differently? Are you hearing music differently? Well, absolutely. I'm not hearing any live music. So that, you know, that's a big chunk of my uh, musical appetite that's, that I'm uh, craving for, yeah. you know, and uh, that I miss, I, I sorely miss. Because I'm, I, I, I fancy myself as, as the, the music phantom. I'll slither in into the back of a club unannounced, catch a few tunes, and, and leave, you know, without any fanfare. And I, I, like, to, I like it to be that way because um, musicians tend to, to, to play differently when they know someone's in the house, you know. You know. So I, I don't like the announcements. I don't like the acknowledgement. I just like to, to hear people in their natural habitat, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and um, and you know, so and it has um made me pull some some sides out of my collection that have been dormant, you know, for years that blow the dust off them, you know, that I haven't even had the incentive to listen to people's whole discographies and their whole catalogs and then referencing obscure sides, you know, uh, you know, that haven't been heralded very, very much. And just to see where people were in their development at you know any given time. So it's been, um, in terms of reference, it's been good. You know? Right, that, that mm-hmm. makes sense because I would imagine, I mean, most of us, let alone someone who's touring all the time, a touring musician who's moving around and busy and their calendar is full, you know, a year in advance and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we're not listening to music with that sort of intention and listening, you know, to a whole side from front to back and mm-hmm. really listening to projects. So. That makes sense, yeah, that you would be able to internalize it differently, you know. Yeah, and I'm also listening for enjoyment more now, too, as opposed to listening for education and listening for, uh, you know, just analysis. I'm actually listening, you know, have music going on as like a sonic wallpaper, more or less. Got know? it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I, the last time we got to... I got to talk to you, I feel like, was around 2005. I was working at Blue Note. You had just released, or were about to release, uh, Channel 3. Mm. So I'm excited to have you here. And I'm excited to talk to you about Miles Davis. When I think about Miles and what I'd like to think I understand about his philosophy, about where the music should be going, and not necessarily Mm. that there was a particular destination, but that it has to move forward. Mm. And I feel like that is very central to your own Mm. legacy in a way. So is there any part of Miles's philosophy that you adopted as an artist um, along the way? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I kind of uh, put... Miles Davis in the category, um, it's like a collage artist. You know, a collage artist would take these unrelated variables and, and put them together to 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 form and comprise a, a completely different new work that expresses something else. You know, other than their original intention. And so Miles Davis was was amazing at finding these misfits, these these people that that lurked, you know, on the periphery of the scene that were known, but weren't, you know, uh, frontliners or headliners, weren't the first pick, 
you know, these are the guys that were the last pick at the at the basketball court in the musical sense. <laughs> right. You know, and um he was very visionary in that he would, I, I don't know, I, I would just imagine he would say, hmm, I wonder what it would sound like if I put this guy with this guy and, and nobody likes either one of them. You know, he would find, I mean, they fancied um, uh, Red Garland as a cocktail pianist, you know, and uh, Philly Joe Jones was, you know, iffy because he had certain habits, you know, where people, the people didn't want to deal with that. Coltrane was dismissed because he didn't have the brawny, uh, wide, expansive tenor saxophone sound. It was more high-pitched and more thin, you know, and um, Paul Chambers was a kid, you know, but he put these people together and created a classic group. Same thing with Wayne Short, who probably wasn't a lot of people's first choice. Tony Williams was a kid who played with a very bombastic style. You know, there was a, an amalgamation of, you know, his predecessors but nobody had ever heard anyone express themselves like that. Herbie Hancock was, you know, some people considered him a, a classical pianist, as well as Ron Carter, a classical bassist. You know, so the, the idea that you can, you know, move these, these, these fixtures around, you know, like a, uh, you know, what do they call it? The, the board that people use when they make movies. Uh, the, uh, oh, like a vision board? Sto the storyboard, the storyboard yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you can move it around, you know, like that or a Rubik's Cube until you come come up with something that works and it's, it's undefinable because it has no precedent. Wow. You know? Yeah. Never thought of it like yeah. that. That's such yeah. a brilliant way, yeah. way to put that. And so when you, when does Miles Davis come into your consciousness um because i know that you grew up listening to all kinds of styles of music mm -hmm. so you know talk to me a little bit about the music that you were listening to you know really early on because i think there's this mm -hmm. this thing where people think that if you play the music that we call jazz you just like came out the womb you know doing charlie parker licks right. or something right, you know right, but right. you know we are um a very broad people you know, so so what were you listening to, and then when does Miles Davis enter, and what is that like? I can tell you exactly when, but okay, let's say around 1968, 1969, I was eight, nine years old. Um, my mother worked at a, a record distribution company in St. Louis, so all of the major labels sent, you know, new releases and promotional copies and cutouts and white labels, you know, to her company and then they would in turn distribute them to all the, the stores in and around town, the mom and pop stores, the large chains and things like that. As a result, um, she would bring home literally boxes and stacks of records every day, you know, overstock returns, things like this. So we had, you know, the the record collection to die for, you know, and, and as opposed to making a playlist on the computer, I mean our playlist was stacking those records up on, on the on the arm of the um, of the, of the record player, you know, and it was, it was a very, um, I don't want to say reckless, but it was um, without uh, any kind, it was, it was full formatted, you know, mm -hmm. multi-formatted, meaning that I would listen to a Mahalia Jackson record, behind that would be Hendrix, after that would be Sly and the Family Stone, after that would be the Jackson Five, then there would be some, some opera stuff, some Mario Lanza, some Johnny Mathis. And so it was like that. So I developed this very broad um, acceptance of, of all musical styles and genres, you know, without uh, judgment, as long as the quality was great and the fidelity was superb. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And, and so that's what happened. So then we moved from a place from one part of town. I guess I guess it was, it was like um, the like east east um, east central to the west side of St. Louis. From one part of the ghetto to the other part of the ghetto. <laughs> from from a two from a two room apartment to a four room apartment. And um, so on that street, four doors down, there was this man. His name was Mr. Phillips, and every Sunday, without fail. He would put his speakers on the porch and he would play Someday My Prince Will Come as his theme song. I'm telling you, know, no lie. What? And, and he, he would sit out there with his beer and he would eat watermelon and the whole block had to deal with it because he had seniority on the block. Right. And nobody challenged it. Nobody questioned it. And so by the time, I guess two years later, when I got my hands on the clarinet and then a year after that, 1973, I got my hands on the, on the alto saxophone. I could kind of uh, pantomime a facsimile of the solos on that record because they had been ingrained, you know, just, you know, and, and so that's, you know, so I would say uh, from 1970 until 1974, I heard um, Someday My Prince Will Come every Sunday. And I tell you, my, my intro to this album is, is a Sunday tradition as well. So you, mm -hmm. you got to New York around 82, right? Right, right. Okay. So I don't know if you, you probably remember on WBLS on Sundays, there was a show called Sunday Morning Classics with Hal Jackson. Of course. Of course, right? Of yeah, course. Hal Jackson, the late, great uh, Black radio uh, icon. Yes. And his show, you remember, used... Someday my prince will come for the intro. So as a kid, every Sunday I would hear, you know, that boom, 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 boom. And I would just know like the whole day. And you could almost feel like the heavens opening up. You know, the sun was right. pouring in. Maybe, you know, my mom was cooking something good or something. And it just had this feeling that everything was going to be great. You know, because of the way he set up the show with with that song, so sure, that is sure. so interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, you know, let's let's face it. I mean, you know, Miles Davis's choices and his rhythm section on this piece. I mean, the rhythm section by themselves without him, they're so masterful that any player would have to be extremely sad to sound bad with him. You know, because <laughs> they could do no wrong. I mean, it was kind of. I mean, he was. He was really biting off of uh, Ahmad Jamal. You can hear that in his arrangements, in his whole approach, the touch, you know, the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the whole approach. It was, you know, but that's that's cool because if you're going to bite, you bite a better bite from, from the back. From the back, um, yeah. 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 I mean, but they, they literally define um, perfection in every sense. I mean, good taste, great decision-making, um, support, propellant measures, you know, propulsions. Uh, touch, dynamics, grace, you know, all these great things that you need as someone who's about to tell your story as a soloist. I mean, color, sensitivity, all that kind of stuff, spirit, just, you know, just a, a great cushion. Everything that you just described, I feel like we get, because the tune, Someday My Prince Will Come, opens the record. And I feel like everything that you just described is in that introduction. You know, we don't even have to go to the next tunes yet. It's sure. just everything you describe. You know that Jimmy mm -hmm. on that on that mm -hmm. symbol that mm -hmm. just the begin, just mm -hmm. how how dark and clustery and warm. You know, Winton is and yeah. Quentin Kelly. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's just, it's enchanting. Yeah. So t- talk to me about 1961, right? Because w- what is happening from your, from your perspective? What is happening with Miles Davis as an artist? Well, of course, you know, 1959 preceded that. And in 1959, a whole lot of things were happening. I mean, it was, must have been in the air, in the atmosphere, in the water. You had Mingus. You had uh, Ornette Coleman. You had, you know, Miles Davis. You, you know, had, you know, Duke Gellington. had all these groups and stuff that existed, that coexisted, that sounded dramatically different from one another. You know, so there, was, there weren't any... There wasn't a lot of coattail writing. I mean, it was like a lot of definition, artistic definition, a lot of uh, lines being drawn as to, you know, uh, who I am in terms of my character, uh, what my purpose is, you know, the stories that I'm trying to tell. So I, you know, so that was that was happening. So but I think Miles Davis, you know, it's all speculative, of course, but, uh, you know, Coltrane launched the whole Giant Steps thing, you know, 59, 60 or whatever. And, um, Here's somebody who, who is now a peer, who was once my side man. He's a powerhouse. I'll never be able to replace him. So he's, you know, searching for someone to you know, fulfill that, that missing puzzle piece. Um, and, you know, he had gone through, he got Sonny Stitt for a minute. He had um, Sam Rivers for a minute. And then, you know, of course, uh, Hank Mobley. And then you, I think he settled upon yeah, he settled upon George Coleman before he got Wayne Shorter. So he was looking for somebody who could be, you know, a suitable foil, a musical and artistic foil for him. And going through transitions, you know, as an artist, you know, as a performing artist, a visual artist, any kind of aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know, that gray area is that's that's a very weird place. For some people, it's depressing, it's dark. Some people, they feel that they've reached a creative impasse. Uh, I can't think of nothing. Uh, you know, I, I got nothing. You know, I, you know, you know, a writer sits at his word processor, a typewriter back in the day, and they sit for hours and hours, days upon weeks upon months, and they can't write a paragraph. You know, musicians go into, you know, into these, these periods, these dry spells where they don't write anything new. Uh, painters, you know, sit at the canvas. It's, you know, it's, it's a w- really weird thing. And then one day, you know, lightning you know there's like a crackle of you know thunder or whatever and then this divine thing comes in and things just start to spill and um it's almost as if you're being guided you know by this this specter you know Mm -hmm. or you know the ancestors Mm -hmm. i I wrote a a, a, i had a a blue note release one time it was called the invisible hand Mm -hmm. and that's what that was about it was as if my writing hand was being guided you know by by all the ancestors Wow. You know, because, you know, sometimes you, you emerge from your writing table or from the piano and, you know, you surprise yourself. How did that happen? You know, I, I started with nothing and I emerged with this beautiful song and it does, it's not reflective of any of my experiences or any of my teachings or whatever, but it wrote itself. Mm-hmm. So I feel that, you know, you know, Miles Davis, you know, given that, you know, his, um, you know, his, uh, his stature, you know, I, 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 he probably had, felt a sense of pressure. You know, when you're, you know, when you uh, reside at the, you know, the apex of the pyramid in terms of, you know, the genre, the scene, the vibe, the sound or whatever, you have to maintain that. And I, I do feel that there was a lot of pressure. So, I mean, the search was on for him to find somebody who could fulfill that. I, I, you know, he wasn't happy until he got Wayne Shorter eventually. 
It, it would seem that way. Yeah. I, I think my favorite saxophone, I know my favorite saxophonist in that sort of, if we want to call it, the, an, I wouldn't say an interim. Yes. Like you said, transitional period would be mm -hmm. George Coleman for sure. Um, just. People sleep on George. Man. Hey, George. Well, but then again, but see, but th this this leads us to another part of the discussion that I wanted to address is that uh, a lot of people sleep on even these players who didn't become front runners. I mean, because Sam Rivers, you know, that that live in Tokyo, I mean, he was dominant. He dominated that band. And had he stayed with Miles or Miles had kept him, well, then that would have been great for him. But it would also have been great for music because Sam Rivers was no joke. Um, even, you know, Hank Bowley here, you know, Hank Bowley is, is a compositional, uh, conceptual giant. You know, he helped define the Blue Note sound as, as a label, you know, uh, with yeah. his compositions, with his, um, his combo writing, his co co counterpoint, you know, just the colors that he used, the chords, the voicings, you know, all of the passing chords and stuff. He, he was no joke. And his sound. You know, if if more young players today embrace that kind of sound, this smoky kind of, you know, closeted uh, kind of uh, introverted sound that has so much character and, you know, and and stop jumping on the cold train train or the right. Sonny Rollins train or the Wayne Shorter train or the, you know, the top five, uh, Wayne Shorter or Michael Brecker or Joe Henderson or whatever. So then we would have a lot more diversity and we would have a lot more support uh, from laypersons. You know, so but that's you know that's that's a personal piece. I, I but yeah. I think it is a beyond valid point, yeah. you know, that you're making. I think my favorite Hank Mobley Blue Note record is that Soul Station record mm. uh, with Remembrance and um, I forget what else is on it. But I remember getting into Hank Mobley kind of on my own. I didn't necessarily grow up listening to a lot of his records. Maybe mm. as a sideman, I heard him more. But when I started getting into my teens and early 20s, I gained an appreciation for him that I felt I felt like I was late to the party, so to yeah. speak. Late, to, and, I, and I feel like collectively we are late with giving Hank his flowers. And like you said, really digging into, he has so much to offer. That's honest because a lot of light isn't isn't shown on Hank, you know, and people like that, you know, Hank and Gigi Grice and Frank Foster and Paul Gonsalves and uh, Lucky Thompson and all these players who were critical, you know, to the development of the music as, as, as you know as a genre, but they just weren't lauded in their time. Mm, you know, you know? Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. So, was I? I'm not even sure if Coltrane was supposed to be on this album do you do you know because the story i heard was that train was performing at the apollo mm. and had come to the studio like in between sets or shows or something like that and kind of hopped on some songs kind of thing mm -hmm. um, that's, that's it, a that's a hip-hop term it, exactly exactly <laughs> you know i know i can use that with you um <laughs> speaking of which honestly i do want to just briefly just acknowledge that the way hip-hop and jazz has become this sort of phenomenon now I mean you were doing that like 30 years ago you know yeah. so major major props to you thank you uh, on that yes you're absolutely welcome but it, it 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 flew under the radar you know for for a lot of years because uh Blue Note you know for all of their you know I mean you know stature I mean they really didn't have a street team they didn't really know how to to promote such a recording. They didn't have, you know, that kind of uh, 
mechanism. It, so, that makes sense. So yeah. a lot of people are discovering it now. <laughs> Better <laughs> late than never, I guess. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, was that frustrating for you at the time? Absolutely, well? because yeah. yeah, because the com the company itself was um, undergoing a, a transition. Uh, the parent company, uh, Capital Records, was they got a new uh, president, and so even at Blue Note, there were a lot of empty desks. And a lot of people didn't have well-defined jobs and tasks. So I had to do a lot of stuff myself. I did a lot of recording for hip-hop artists. I, I would um, uh, contract you know, horn sections and rhythm sections to go in and replicate a lot of samples for them so they didn't have to pay through, you know, through the teeth. Yeah, yeah I, I had like a whole side hustle. You know, doing <laughs> what? Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah, well, that's how I got in, you know, with uh, Public Enemy and Tribe Called Quest and, and Pete Rock and CL Smooth and all these people who did production for me because I used to do, you know, work for them. Got it. And so, um, you know, I just wanted to, to meet people in the middle, but it was, it was, it was very frustrating because I, I did uh, double bills, you know, with Diggable Planets, uh, Latifah, um, uh, Black Sheep, mm. uh, Tribe, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you know, different groups, uh, brand new heavies, a whole lot of groups, you know, back during that time, Jaleesa, Anderson, and, um, you know, was completely off the jazz scene, the jazz scene, right. so, so to speak, for a couple of years until that kind of ran its course, you know. It was very icy reception, oh, yeah. um, you know, from the non-hip-hop, you know, community. Yeah. And I would imagine yeah. that you, um, as sort of a, a forerunner there, yeah. you, you, you caught the brunt of that. And you, you paid a lot of dues for it to be totally cool now, yeah. I mean, I know people are still bumping up against a little bit of that, but it's not like it was in 1991. You know, I caught hell. I caught hell because there were no venues set up for that in the United States. I mean, people they had no concept of a live band with musicians, you know, coupled, you know, with a DJ, several MCs, you know, and the sax dude out front, you know, like riffing, like in between, you know, the you know the rhymes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, and so we. You know, we got more momentum in, in the UK, but a lot more in Korea, Japan, and, and, and you know, Far East, you know, like that. And um, so, you know, it became a thing, you know, subsequently, I mean, Branford did his Buckshot La Funk uh, project. Steve Colvin had his his group, you know, with, you know, some 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 rappers and stuff. I don't know if Kenny Garrett did something like that, but, uh, you know, and then uh, the the interesting thing, here's a, here's a, a cool anecdote. At that time, I moved away from New York and I moved to South Jersey and I, and I, I converted my garage into a studio. And I, you know, I used to have, you know, uh, I mean, Roy Hargrove came down and, and did some, some sampling for me, Jerry Allen, Tracy Wormworth, uh, Vernon Reed, you know, from Living Color. Mm -hmm. And also the Roots, you know, they used to, they did some rehearsals over there. And I have the tapes. What? <laughs> because, oh my God. Check this out. And just the, the, one day ago, I got a, a like an out of the blue, a uh, message, you know, on, on Instagram from, from Tariq, from Black Thought. He says, yeah. yeah, I remember those days, bro. Let's get together, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's it's funny, you know, that, that a whole bunch of things are happening at once because I actually, you know, I'm 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 developing a, another project, you know, to, and hopefully it'll be the end all be all. All right now. Yeah. All right. I feel like I just got an exclusive little nugget. Yeah, that was, that was a scoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And, yeah. um, I can't wait for whatever that's going to be. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let, let's talk about the 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 structure of Someday My Prince Will Come. I always have this question, and maybe you could, I'd love to know your thoughts on it. On the solo section of the tune, right, 
the soloists are playing right on the heels of each other. You know, one person solos, the next person solos. But then there's this, I don't know, I think it might be like an eight bar situation where they're just kind of building mm-hmm. and, you know, just building up. And then Train comes in with this mind blowing solo. Right. And it mm-hmm. happens again on Tio, right? Mm-hmm. Where they, he doesn't just come in. It's mm-hmm. like they set him up in this really incredible Mm -hmm. way. And I I feel like, of course, this is all in my head, right? Because I don't know, I wasn't there. But if this was to be the last time that train would record with Miles and for Miles, it almost feels like it's Miles in an arrangement, sort of giving train his flowers, so to speak, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. giving him this glorious entree into the tune you know it's like no we're not just going it's not just going to be me then you then you then train like we, we're going to put some air in there and then he comes in i i think that is one of the most interesting things about the two songs that he's on yeah you know i was well, trained at that time i mean he stood on equal ground you know as an innovator i mean he was just as revered as miles or maybe not so much so but um he had his own trajectory, his own fan base, and um, it would have been a very bad call for them to have not used those tracks because it helped to sell the recording and it changed the, the you know the whole arc of that recording. You know because it was laid back and it was like a more of a you know post kind of bluish vibey record. But train, you know, he added you know the you know the the spirit and the umph. And actually, I I, I do feel that he was. Um, he was holding back a lot because he was in the middle of, you know, one of his most experimental periods. And uh, had he really done what he, you know, could do, like, the, you know, what he did, you know, um, that lab, that final tour of Europe, you know, in, in 1959 or whatever, I mean, they they probably would have had to rename it as a Coltrane record. <laughs> and, 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 and you just put yourself in the shoes of Hank Mobley. I mean, that, that had to be... I mean, supremely, you know, intimidating, you know, to have, you know, his former Philly homie to come in and just completely just, you know, wreck shop, mm. you know, mm. and, you know, it, and Coltrane, I'm sure he wasn't, uh, he wasn't of the sort, you know, to be a, 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 a musical bully. He was just expressing himself based upon how he practiced and how he heard things and how he wanted to tell his story, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that that's that's an incredible position to be put in. I mean, here I am, you know, the hired gun, and then here comes this, you know, this gunslinger. It's almost like Clint Eastwood, like rolling through town with a fistful of dollars, you know. <laughs> oh man, you know, you know, but you know, you're right because I thought of well I didn't think of that um but I, but I thought about what that could have been like for Hank and and honestly you know I love the fact that you get to hear both of them on the same record but to your that's point right. that's that could not have been easy you know the contrast is so beautiful though I mean contrast is a beautiful thing I mean there's nothing more uh uninspiring than to hear like-minded, like-directioned uh, di- players on a project or on a gig, and they come behind each other. They're playing, you know, in, in tandem, and you know, and, 
you know, uh, and it's, you know, you don't, you, you can almost anticipate what they're going to do. You know, if you have any, um, you know, if, if you, if you know their, you know, their discography, you know, their output, um, that's, that's not, I don't think that's, you know, okay, I'll put it like this. Say you're in, in a police lineup in like 1955 and you're blindfolded and you, you can't really see these players' faces, but you know, they start to play. And you have five or six tenor players and they all play. Back then, people were so distinctive. You know, you could tell Stan Getz from Gene Ammons, Flip Phillips, you know, from Lucky Thompson to Dexter Gordon to Coltrane to Sonny Stitt to Lester Young, they all sounded completely different. Fast forward to 2021. Now the, the menu is very, very limited. You only have right. like three items on there. You have maybe Coltrane, Michael Brecker, Joe Lovano, uh, Mark Turner, Chris Potter. So all the, you know, the young guys, they're pantomiming these players as opposed to broadening their scope and their references by checking out people that nobody listens to anymore. Oh man, that's the old style. You know, that's you know, Betty Carter had a saying. She would say, um, "Wow, that's so old. It's, it's brand new." Mm. Meaning, meaning that it's so old that people have abandoned it. If you check it out and internalize it and incorporate that into your current work, now you have you one upped all of your peers who ignore that. So there's a lot of gemstones and unearthed treasures that are right in you know under our noses. So I think this is the lesson that, you know, educators need to, you know, to, to emphasize. Of course, you're going to go for the current flavors, you know, because they're winning the polls, they're doing all the gigs, you know, that the, you know, our contemporary champions. That's, that's natural. People did that with Charlie Parker. You know, he destroyed a whole lot of careers, you know, and it wasn't even his fault because right. the weight of what he was doing was so strong that people got caught up in his vortex. Coltrane. Michael Brecker, you know, these dominant players that everyone just gravitates to because that's what they think is expected. Mm -hmm. I have different expectations. I want to hear somebody tell me a story that's reflective of your perspective of life and, and the elements and the universe, you know, and I want it to be markedly different than, than anybody else. You know, just as your, your, your tone of voice your, your rhythm, the way you walk, you know, your heartbeat, all these things, you know, define who we are as human beings, as individuals. Now, why should, you know, there be 10,000 Kenny Garrett sounding alto players, you know, in circulation? You know, why should there be a whole army exactly. of Michael Brecker playing guys, a Coltrane playing guys? I mean, been there, done that. And what's interesting about what you're saying is that I don't think that the players that you mentioned would want that either. Absolutely not. You know, I think they would be really, you know, it would be heavy for on their heart to know that. Listen, that, you know, I did a um, a few um, master classes with Michael Brecker, and you know, he was very very cool guy. Gave me some cool tips, you know, um, very accepting of you know, I guess my alternative view of things, you know, very open and very inquisitive too. But uh, we did a, a couple of joint master classes. And, you know, we would have, you know, young tenor players would come up and they would like rip off, you know, some, a few bars of, you know, Michael Brecker solo. And I could see him like cringing almost, turning red or whatever, you know. And then one time he just, I guess he, he had to say, he had to say it. It had to be said. He said, 
Yeah, that's that's really great, you know, and, and that's you know really great that you you transcribe my solo or whatever, you know. But those are things that I worked on, you know, for years, and uh, I'm still, you know, in the mindset of, a, of that of a student. I'm I still consider myself a student. I, I still consider myself progressive. I'm growing, and so for me to hear you do that, it almost sounds like you know you're setting yourself up, you know. He didn't say for failure, but mm-hmm. what he was alluding to was that I'm still alive, you know, and, you know, you play so much like me, you know, you know, uh, another time, one time I, I was going down uh, the stairs to um, the jazz standard, you know, to see, uh, you know, one of my uh, former students play. He had, a, you know, he got, I had a series there. It was called Greg Osby Presents. And so every week I would like present groups. There. I, I did that also at Sweet Basil mm-hmm. for a while. And Cornelia Street Cafe. I curated a lot of stuff. But anyway, so um, as I was coming down the stairs, I said, wow, well, Kenny must be sitting in, you know. And there was this, 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 this alto player who was on the gig. And he sounded more like Kenny Gary than Kenny. And I, you know, and I tried to talk to him for many years. And he said, well, Mr. Hosby, I really, really respect that. But, you know, there's, there's still so much that I have to get from, 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 from Kenny Gary. I'm like, man, but you... You're out Kenny and Kenny, you know, right. and, that's, and Kenny is alive and well. He's healthy. He's going to be around for a while. So how many people you think are going to hire you and book you to play when you sound that much like somebody who's this much, you know, this influential? And so everywhere I go, when I do master classes and clinics and lectures and residencies, I hear all, all of these, these minor birds, these parrots yeah. of players who are either more popular or more renowned. And it's, it's, it's very disheartening because when I mention who they possibly might benefit from checking out, I just get this, this blank look, this hollow look, like no recognition, no acknowledgement. And that's, that's sad. So I, I think a, a lot of the, the, the educational uh, principles need to be overhauled in, in where that's you know, regarded. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm so <laughs> glad that you are being vocal about that and that that is central to, you know, your mentorship. I think it is so needed, you know, we are, we, we need it. And I think, you know, 1961 Coltrane, he's, I guess that's his Atlantic run and where he's still figuring things out, you know, himself. So I think people, it's it's like, if anything, if you're going to take anything from these artists that you're, parroting and 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 worshiping take from them the fact that they took the searching seriously the searching of their own artistry of their own creativity right. and, and that pushing forward if you're going to take anything take more philosophically sure. that way that's right that's right we'll yeah. see yeah. yeah you know this you know this is you know uh, one of the staples you know of, of my pedagogy you know in terms of um, you know honor the example that these people set, you know, but not, you know, but don't dishonor them by, by biting, you know, you know, their output for the majority of your careers. There's some people who've built entire careers on playing like somebody or, you know, and, and they, they consider it uh, flattering when you say, man, you know, you sound just like so-and-so and they go, really? Wow. Thanks. Whereas uh, <laughs> Eddie Lockjaw Davis told me one time, you know, he was playing at the Blue Note, and he said, you know, uh, 
Yeah, you know, I, I've heard something with, I think he may have heard me with Jack D. Jeanette or, mm-hmm. or somebody. I don't know, he, you know, I've heard, you know, and wow, I don't really, I can't really tell who you listen to or, you know, where you're coming from or whatever. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of the point. He said, yeah, because, you know, back, you know, when I was young, if somebody would have told me or anybody that they sound like somebody, they might be waking up, you know, off the floor because those are fighting words. Right. Somebody, you know, uh, Jim Hall, you know, who I played with, you know, for over 15 years, he took, he was very close with Ben Ben Webster. And Ben Webster, you know, was a brawny guy known as a bruiser, kind of a boxer. You know, he would get inebriated and, you know, he didn't suffer fools and he would knock guys out. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody came up to him and told him, man, you know, you sound kind of like Colvin Hawkins, they might, you know, be waking up, you know, on on, on the sidewalk somewhere. (laughs) You know, Sonny Stitt, you know, he was uh, insulted, you know, when people said he sounded like Charlie Parker, you know, and, and other players. They, you know, they didn't want to hear that. They right. were trying to carve out, you know, uh, an identity. And this is something that if, if this was, you know, a, a presiding overall notion, you know, or, or, or prerequisite to people getting a gig in New York or whatever, we would have a, a, a more vibrant state to be, you know, you could be certain. Amen to that. Wow. And so talk to me a little bit about Miles Davis as a stylist in that way, because whether it was a song, Someday My Prince Will Come, that was written 25 years before he records it, or toward the end of his life when he's doing human nature or time after time, you know, he Mm. always, as you said, personalized these songs, but in a very impactful way. Mm -hmm. What, what What are your feelings about Miles as the stylist? Well, yeah, above all, his tone spoke for itself. He didn't have to play very much to get his point across because it's his tone. And I'm, talk- I'm not talking about his sound because everyone has a sound, but everyone doesn't have a, a distinctive tone that's just pleasant to the ear or gratifying or memorable. Mm-hmm. Something that, you know, that, that puts a stamp on things. He could have played whole notes. He could have just been super sparse on their recording and it still would have been profound. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that um, people go a lifetime to achieve and, and many don't, they don't attain that. Say, you know, and something distinctive, you know, like, uh, say, an Aretha Franklin or Shaka Khan or a Gladys Knight or a, a Sam Cooke or Nat Cole or whatever. You know, they could sing um, very economically and you know who it is, you know, immediately. And they change the, the, the whole arc of things by their mere involvement, their mere inclusion. You know, so the, despite, you know, the fact that the arrangements were superb and his choice of side men couldn't have been better. And then them to working together as a cohesive unit was unmatched. Yeah. You know, people use them as, as a standard. So when he immersed himself in that that pool that he made for himself, that sonic pool. I mean, you can't go wrong. All the ingredients are there. Mm-hmm. They're all there. And uh, then his 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 uh his massive use of of the you know of the, the harm and mute. Mm-hmm. You know, he made that a vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, private I mean and now when you hear it, people, you know, they credit it to him. You know, they, they, oh, yeah, oh, you trying to be like Miles. Or you, that's the Miles vibe. You know, that's something. You take something that you didn't even invent, and now it's attributed to you. You know, that's deep. And, you know, just his, um, 
his choices. I mean, his his uh, his decision making. You know, when to leave the spaces. You know, the the breaths and the rests become just as significant as the content of the notes that he played. You know, yeah. when you know the spaces between the the statements. That's just as as as, as heavy as when he actually did play something. That that makes you lean in, you know, and you and you kind of um, you hang on every note. It's like a, um, uh, you know, an orator, a brilliant orator like Martin Luther King or you know Barack Obama. You know, you can't wait for the next statement because you know it's going to be heavy, it's going to be deep, and you're going to have a great deal of takeaway. And you know, you and that's why we can listen to those records over and over again, and extract different things, you know, from repeated listens. Because there's a lot there to be discovered, and it's it's just so deep. I mean, that's 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 artistry on on a level that can't be measured. You know, it's, it's, it's immeasurable that 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 level of profundity. You know, you just can't. You know, it's just you know very very rare in, in our lifetime that people emerge with that level of you know, vibe. It's just absolutely. You know. absolutely. And you know, we all you know as artists, you know, we all aspire you know to to do things that are, you know. That you know, that profound, and then when people when they they leave you know the venue, you know things still resonate you know with them you know either songs or you know uh, an area within a song or you know just the, the overall story that you were trying to tell, as opposed to them leaving you know the club or, or the concert hall and not remembering anything. It's yeah. like man, I just heard a whole bunch of notes and a lot of fast fingers, and you know it was you know. Uh, cacophony it was chaotic you know and you know they played really loud I, I don't want people to say that we were just playing loud and fast and and reckless I want them to say man you know it took me to another place it was uh, transformative it was like uh I mean I was catapulted you know into into another arena another zone I, I was it was an out-of-body experience you know these are the kind of superlative you want to you know when people are describing your work and so practically every recording he did is a masterpiece in that sense because it it is you know prover- that, that proverbial statement that takes you on a journey. Absolutely, yeah. From from the opening piece to the closing piece, you are teleported if you allow yourself to be, and almost even if you don't, it's kind of irresistible in mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. And I think you know we'd be remiss not to talk about this iconic album cover as well. This is Francis. Davis, his the brilliant uh, dancer, who was also Miles Davis's wife on the cover of the album, and the fact that prior to this album, um, I was it Miles Smiles or was it Miles Ahead? It was I think it was Miles Ahead where there's this white woman on a yacht and a little white child, and, mm-hmm. and Miles is very angered by this, you know, he because. You know, he's not consulted. He's not, you know, he doesn't know ahead of printing that this is what they're going to do. Um, he um, sort of finds out later yeah. on and he's very, very upset about it. And then so this album sort of feels like an answer to that. Like, you know, you're not because that was a a tradition, right, with, yeah. with, with music where where white people were on the covers of doo-wop albums and mm-hmm rock and roll and all the all black music to um as a way to uh, what they would say is well we want to make it more commercial and more this mm-hmm. more that but obviously it was you know much more more yeah. sinister in its intention 
And yeah, well, I, well, I guess they figured that, you know, they're putting the black artists on the covers of their own uh, recordings would alienate, you know, a, a potential demographic, uh, make the, le- the record less uh, palatable and acceptable, you know, to people who, you know, either were challenged by the black images or were repugnated by them or fearful. You know, so these, you know, these label heads, uh, presidents and producers, they've made, you know, the decision, you know, to put, you know, white women on the cover of practically all releases. Right. You know? exactly. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I, Miles, he, I, I read that he regretted putting her on there afterwards. You know, he regretted putting her, on, you know, it's, it's almost like having a tattoo that you can't get rid of, you know, putting like somebody's name on your on your body and then you can't, you know, get rid of it. So. A lot of musicians discuss this. A lot of male musicians talk about um, putting women on on the cover of their recordings and stuff, especially women that they're involved with. Because uh, yeah. you don't you don't see a lot of um, women artists doing it, like Aretha Franklin records and stuff. She didn't have her husbands and stuff on the cover of her records and things like that. Shock and Khan didn't have you know her husband on a you know Diana Ross and so it's 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 interesting you know this you know the, the imbalance in that. Not, yeah. and, you know, and afterwards, uh, Miles, he puts Cicely Tyson on Miles' smile. Yeah. Oh, the sorcerer. Yeah. Sorcerer. Sorcerer. Was a sorcerer. Yeah. yeah but, but they did. But they weren't, they weren't um, married at that time, I don't think. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, regrets aside, I think that it was a hell of a statement, you know, oh, yeah. uh, to, to do that, you know, because whether it was, you know, Francis or another Black woman, you know, right. I think that the point that he was trying to make was you don't get to one sort of creatively dictate how my music is represented, um, certainly without my permission. And then you don't get to say that this is the standard. And if anything is the standard, I'm gonna show you an example of what my personal standard of beauty or, you know, appeal, you know, would be. So me as a black woman, Yes, obviously the relationship dissolves and all that, but his sort of repeated decision to, uh, and we know like Miles has a very sort of complicated Mm -hmm. uh, legacy with with, with women, but um, this specifically, you know, as a black woman, I'm particularly grateful for, you know, that decision that he made. And even, you know, the tune itself coming from a Snow White, you know, movie as, you know, and and she's Snow White, you know, and she's thinking about her prince and, you know, and it almost feels like this rebellious, shouldn't be the word because, but this, um, he put his foot down. He took a stand because at that point, really, they needed him more than he needed them because he, he would have been signed by any other record company. That's right. He was a top, you know, top artist, top selling artist. And, uh, he helped define, you know, the, you know, the direction of the, of the label, you know, he was, you know, selling better than a lot of the classical releases. Uh, I don't even know if the, their R&B records were, you know, division was really that happening or that, that well-defined or developed at the time. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he was a fashion icon. He was a cultural icon. And he wrote, you know, he rode around defiantly in red Ferraris and Fiat's and, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, and European sports cars, you know, had the device custom made, you know, threads you know the band was tight and and he he filled you know concert halls yeah so at that point you know they have to acquiesce it's like okay we know we know what are they going to tell miles david you know we're going to keep putting white women on the cover you can't do what you want you know 
Um, that would have been like, you know, people telling Michael Jackson that, you know, in the, you know, 70s, 80s and 90s or whatever. Exactly. You can't do that. So, you know, and I, I appreciate that. And it, it, it established a precedent. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I think we think about somebody like Michael or somebody like Miles, and we forget that they knocked down a lot of those doors and they didn't knock them down because the red carpet was just laid out for them. They had to deal with their own fights. You know, even sure. when we talk about off the wall, and how he was kind of snubbed at the, the Grammys. Grammys. They didn't even televise his category. You right. know, that's right before Thriller. Right. You know, think about, or the fact that, you know, MTV was so racist at the time and wasn't. They wouldn't play his videos. Exactly. You know, mm. so like you said, I think most importantly, precedent that they set, you know, mm-hmm. Miles um, sort of standing on principle, but also, you know, fighting for his creative freedom off of the horn. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was something that had a ripple effect for artists up into your generation and and beyond because I would imagine mm-hmm. that, you know, you did you ever bump up against that or you cr- pretty much creatively could do what you wanted, right? In terms of your um your art and things the artwork for your projects and things like that. When I came to New York, it it it, it heralded, you know, this this whole Era that somebody coined uh, the Young Lions era. Right. You know, it was me, Walsh Roney, Donald Harrison, Terrence Blanchard, the Marsalises, Steve Coleman, Cassandra Wilson, Jerry Allen. You know, a whole lot of people. Us came to New York at the same time. You know, we were transplants. And uh, so a lot of record companies, they saw this as an opportunity, you know, because it, it, it seemed like, you know, there was this whole interest. In, you know, and 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 resurgence in interest, you know, of you know acoustic music and people swinging and all this kind of stuff. And it was the beginning of you know the Marcellus mania, for lack of a better term, you know, because you know he was he was you know getting heat and getting uh, momentum, and so you know other labels were looking for their golden goose, you know, equivalent. You know, let me find some young articulate person, you know, in a suit, you know, whatever, you know, in a band, so whatever, so. They they were they were looking for that, but I resisted you know those um, those offers to to record at that time. I was in my early twenties. I was trying to apprentice as much as I could with elders and get up you know under the wing and and um, and so um, you know I waited until I was twenty six or twenty seven. So a lot of people they prematurely allowed themselves to get signed in the records themselves. So when I negotiated my first deal, which was with a uh, a startup label in based in Munich that was distributed through Polygram, it was uh, me, Steve Coleman, uh, John Barbarelli, Cassandra Wilson, Robert Eubanks, Gary Thomas. We were all on that label. It was called JMT. And I said, "Listen, I'll only sign if I can do whatever I want. You know, without any label intervention. You know, you don't tell me what to do. Fine." So I did three recordings with them. Then Bruce Lumball came and said, you know, I'd like to bring you to Blue Note. I said, well, you know, you all have a, a reputation, a lineage, a history, and uh, I don't want to disrupt that because, you know, I'm not about to. He said, you can do whatever you want. I said, that means that, you know, nobody's coming and, you know, you know giving me repertoire and, and telling me to take something off and do these, these, these kind of records and tribute records. And I, he said, no, you do, you do what you do, deliver the record, and we'll, you know, and we'll market your you know, and he was a fan all the way up until, you know, my departure. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's the ideal situation where you have, 
you know, you know, free reign yeah. to express yourself. Exactly. And, you know, and it's rare. Even now. Yeah. Right. Even 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 at the time of you know when you were coming up, and I would imagine mm-hmm. even now. So, yeah, I I I major props to to Miles and and Michael and those people you named for mm-hmm. for doing that because they didn't mm-hmm. have to. You know, they yeah. didn't have to, and, mm-hmm. and grateful that they did. Now, backtracking a little bit, I mean, it's unfortunate that this recording and its tenure with you know the Miles Davis Quintet didn't serve as a catapult, you know, for Hank Mobley, you know, to, to more, uh, you know, illustrious stature, you know, as, as a conceptualist, as, you know, as an artist or whatever. Um, And there were a few people that, I mean, George Coleman, I mean, should be, should reside, you know, in, you know, in, in, in that pantheon. Um, Sam Rivers. So it wasn't until, you know, Wayne Shorter, you know, got with the group that, you know, here was somebody that was considered, you know, worthy of the public's attention and praise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the list is, is, is endless of people who are like that, you know, and these are the people that, that appeal to me the most. Because yeah. not that I've grown tiresome of listening to people play like, you know, the top five or people talk about the top five or, or people, you know, praising the top five, but there's so much more dimension and color and variance, you know, that's being overlooked. And once people, you know, understand that within the music and the support of the music and the acceptance of this music will return to uh, the, the place that it that it, you know once where it once resided you know like back in 1961 where people where clubs were full you know of rabid uh, aficionados. I'm optimistic and I'm certain that it, it can happen again. But um, I think you know the key is that we need more groups. We need more groups that stay together that define the sound and the direction. Because Miles Davis, you know, he was able to have a group and hold it down. But Dizzy, you know, he, he once told me, he said, um, in order to have a group, you have to have gigs, and you have to have gigs to have a group. Wow. And so uh, if you, you know, have a group and you're only playing like every, you know, few months, it's kind of hard to keep those guys, you know, together because they have to perform as a sideman and go around and freelance and do other things. Then they may not be available when you get a gig. Mm-hmm. But so back then, these people, they had residencies at clubs. They may be at a club for six weeks you know, the five spot or the village vanguard or, you know, wherever, you know. And so they could like work out the kinks and they could develop a group sound. And so, or they may go to Europe, you know, for a couple months and they come back and go right into the studio, you know, don't even need the music. They have everything worked out, all the arrangements and, you know, it's telepathic, you know, all the moves they're able to anticipate what each other's doing. They're, you know, they're in sync with one another. So it's very difficult to do that when we don't have that many venues. And when you're only doing one-nighters and when everybody's hopping around New York and around Europe or wherever they have to go to get a gig, and you may not be able to get the drummer that you like or the pianist that you like. You may have to get a sub. That's disruptive to the, you know, to the thread of, of sound. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, it's hard to develop a chemistry when things are intermittent in that, yeah. in that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that's a big part of Miles's legacy. You know, even if, you know, we're talking about him having multiple groups, he spent substantial time 
with each one. So you really get to, there, there's, there's a mark on each one that, that we can name, that we can hear the aesthetic. We can, we can really talk about each one because it had time to develop into something that we can suss out, yeah. you know, and yeah. and yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you have a favorite song on this record? I would have to say, you know, the title track. Yeah. Because again, you know, the contrast between the two tenor saxophone players, their style, their concept, their tone, their approach, and their treatment of this piece. You know, Hank Mobley is I don't I don't like saying hard bop and all that, but he you know, he's he's playing what you would expect from somebody who's deliberately, you know, outlining those chords and the changes and stuff, but being very melodic and being very Hank Mobley-ish. Yeah, because he does have a very you know uh, definite thing that he does that reaches me. Yeah. But Coltrane, again, like I said, he's 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 a bit more reserved, um, respectful, and um, he's 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 tiptoeing. You know, even though his tiptoe is is a lot heavier than many people's best effort. Yes. You know, but I think he wanted to be appropriate. He wanted to be uh, colorful and not dainty, but um, he, he, he wanted to, to, to exhibit some some level of balance because I'm, I'm sure, based upon you know what he was doing and what he did prior to this, he would have been in left field and everyone else would have been in right field. Right. You know, right. and so I, I think he wanted to, to join the party and not you know. Tear the roof off or something. You know I mean? Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's he's pushing it on Tio. You feel you can feel the um yeah. the the quiet restraint there. Oh, yeah. Harmonically, he's he's just yeah. opening that song up, you know. But like you said, yeah. there's there's this reservation, this mm-hmm. this, this respectful, I like mm-hmm. that word, mm-hmm. reservation and yeah. I'm going to, it's almost like, you know, if they say, well, it's a all white party or yeah. we're, all, we're all drinking, you know, red wine. Well, then you bring a bottle of red to the, <laughs> to the event. Now you may bring a very rare red, yeah, yeah. You know, but you're going to, you know, respect the code. The respect that's, the code. that's a funny analogy. I mean, because there are people that they go to a white party and they bring red wine and they don't wear white. They, they may wear <laughs> like, you know khaki or cream or you know some faded dingy white you know or, or may not even wear any white you know right. and that level of defiance you find that in a lot of uh, musical situations where people say well you know I gotta be me man I gotta I gotta express myself I gotta be me I'm like man but you know that wasn't you know that you know that that, that wasn't the requirement here exactly be you on your thing yeah yeah, yeah exactly there you go so you if know. so if someone were to sort of they they've never heard this album, they've never heard, you know, a Miles Davis record, let's say, and they randomly picked this one. This was gonna be the one that they heard as a sort of an introduction to Miles Davis, right? What would you how would you preface this record for someone? I would say this is um a very vivid example of an artist who's known for being progressive in the most biblical sense of being progressive, always moving, always flowing, always picking up um, components and variables along the way, putting those into the craft and artfully 
you know, making them a part of the fabric, the total fabric of the, of the thing. And, but this is, you know, that artist in one of his transitory periods where he's, you can feel that he hasn't quite arrived at, at his group of choice. He has a rhythm section, but they're carryovers, you know, but for him, you know, he, he's always, you know, in, in those groups during those periods, I mean, he always had, you know, like strong tenor saxophone players. You know, that was his coupling, you know, and he was looking for a, a foil. And you can, you know, there's a great deal of, um, of haughtiness, like reserve, you know, in his playing. I mean, he's not like really um, knuckling down. I mean, like he did on milestones or something like that. You know what I mean? Or he, you know, that was ferocious, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, um, yeah, there's an artful tap dance going on here. You know, seeing their potential, seeing what they're capable of, still being himself, you know, to the to the nth degree, but not really, you know, knuckling down. It's almost like he he does his his thing and he steps back to see what they do together. You know, so he's a participant yet an observer, but it's 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 a group on the move, you know, under his you know tutelage, his observation, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you know, it's not. It's not his strongest date, but it's important, you know, as, as an example of um, of a shift, you know, of a shift, you know, because I mean, uh, you know, they went on, they, you know, they they performed by themselves, you know, as a Whitten Kelly trio, you know, and I guess there was some conflict later on, either either financial or conceptual, or you know, he wanted to move on, and they still wanted to swing mm-hmm. like they were swinging before. Mm-hmm. So that's when you know he got a whole different band after that of young dudes willing and 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 you know eager to please you know so that it's 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 really deep you know determining how long it took him to realize that these guys can't really um, serve my purposes or are unsuitable for what what I'm hearing right either they made a decision or he did yeah because we would you see know, it again. Let's say when he wanted Ron Carter to play electric bass, there at there's mm-hmm. another impasse where it's like mm-hmm. I, that's not my thing. Mm-hmm. But, but, I mean, but you also feel it, you know, when um, when Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, and Tony Williams were playing with George Coleman, mm-hmm. you know, and and to hear George Coleman tell it, he you know, it was it was me versus them. You know, he really didn't vibe with them. They didn't hang with him. They didn't, you know, it was you know, it's it's. When you when you're in in that situation with 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 some some um, players that uh, I mean they played beautifully behind George Coleman or whatever, but you can tell that they didn't they didn't play the same way that they were playing behind Miles Davis, and they certainly didn't play the same way when they were way shorter got the group. Exactly. You know, but so. I think the the way George played those beautiful turnarounds oh. and and his harmonic sense. I think it changed the way they played too. You know, it opened up. Well, they had to adjust. Yeah, they had to adjust. They just couldn't. They couldn't be stubborn and and just you know sit like they're like a bum on a log and not support them or whatever because then that would have jeopardized their position in the group. But um, you can tell that they were lobbying for Wayne Shorter to get in the group. But Tony Williams was lobbying for Sam Rivers to get in the group. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so, but when that settled, but then that was the next great quintet. 
Yeah. But so yeah, so he, you know, Miles Davis went through several different tenor players, and and this is this is one of one of those, and uh, I, I enjoy it. I I like the the process. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to let's let's make this work. Let's put a you know a square peg into a round hole here, mm-hmm. and make some music together. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mr. Osby, I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity to talk about this record with you. You have opened my mind and given me so much insight and a different way to look at this landmark album, you know. So thank you so much for being here with me. And do you want to plug anything, anything you got coming up, going on? First of all. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate you, and I appreciate your series, and I appreciate you know your your efforts, you know, in being thorough, you know, in terms of reference and 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 you know really being detailed. So that that helps me makes you know my position a, a, a lot easier. And as as far as a plug, I'm uh, about eighty five cent complete with my next recording, and I have a released a recording since 2008 under my own name. So it's been a while because I have my own label, uh, Inner Circle Music, and uh, been doing that and doing a whole lot of other different projects and movie music and education and all kind of things. So I'm sitting on, you know, a great deal of uh, unreleased, unpublished works that I'm, I'm very happy to be able to finally be able to share with people again. And, um, you know, put my band together and go back out on the road once this this whole pandemic cloud dissipates. Yeah. And uh tell tell my stories again. So, you know, again, thanks, thanks so much. I've been looking forward to this. Same here, same here. And you know, I'd love to have you back anytime. So thank you and um thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Milestones with Angelica Beener is a production of WBGO Studios. Theme music produced by Riley Glasper. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.